Hi, this is Axel, and this is my golden hour. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Double clap signifies the start of an episode, and before we begin, <laughs> everyone relax. Relax. I got a couple of quick things I got to say. One, hi, this is Connor Hall with the Golden Hours Podcast. And listen, if you by chance get any sort of value from this episode, whether you laugh, you're entertained, you get a little emotional, you learn something, dude, just share it with a friend. And if you don't have friends, you shouldn't be listening to podcasts. Let's go, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have an eclectic mix of individuals in the drafty warehouse this morning. Let's uh let's go around and introduce ourselves real quick. Hey, I'm Sarah. Um, this is my second podcast, and I'm excited to be here. AKA Sarah Slugs. Sarah Slugs. That's a fire <laughs> nickname, right? That's awesome. <laughs> yo yo, big fresh checking in. Freshy. Do you, do you want to make sure your headphones work okay? Yeah, I think only one of them's on. So. So you're not even feeling it today, okay? And. Actually, Sarah, we'll record a little opener before this where I announce our big event on January 17th. But on my right, so all my friends who work corporate jobs are like, real estate seems like, okay, dude, like if I'm going to work in like business, real estate seems like there's no ceiling to it. Like something like very glamorous about it. And so if... Everybody tunes back to like episode, I don't know, like 60 or 70. I had Jess and Layla from Lacuna Health up here. And so I was talking to Jess recently about the event. And she was like, wait, did you know my boyfriend is like this real estate guru? And I was like, well, now I know, fam. (laughs) (laughs) Guru, that's not bad. (laughs) And so I want to make sure I pronounce your last name right, bro, because it seems like it's something straight out of Game of Thrones. Yeah, no, it is. (laughs) So it's Axel Ragnarsson. Yeah, that's right. It was well executed? That was perfect. That's how I'd say it. Where, where are you from? Like, what's your family from? Uh, my dad's Swedish, so I have pretty much all or half my family on the uh, over in Sweden. But, um, I mean, I grew up in Mass in New Hampshire, so. Like straight out of Sweden? Yeah, he moved here when he was like 30, so he's literally Swedish. Like English, second language, all that stuff. So, um, interesting story. Interesting group of characters over there, but. But myself, yeah, I'm from New England, so a little less exciting. What are the Swedes known for? Being really tall and being good at hockey, handling snow well. Uh, (laughs) That's pretty much the big three. Is that that region of like Eastern, Western Europe, whatever it is, where everyone's just huge? So it's it's technically Northern Europe, so it's like right in Scandinavia, so between Norway and uh, and Finland, and everyone up there is so tall. Like I'm the shortest person in in my in that extended part of my family. And what are you like six four? I'm I'm six five, yeah. Jesus. Um, I'm, well, it's the same it, actually yeah. thing for me too, because I'm six three and I'm the yeah, smallest dude in well. my family. Yeah. And what are you? What nationality? I don't know, bro. I don't really want to know. <laughs> A lot of stuff, yeah. <laughs> well, have you ever thought like, yo, if you like do like an ancestral test and like you like look all the way back? It, what if like you just cover up some terrible dirt on your family? Yeah. Like there's just like a long line of alcoholics and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting on my side because I mean we're all we all come from Vikings and those guys were bad dudes, so I'm sure there's uh there's some questionable characters littering uh littering the lineage. I know, big fresh like they they glorify Viking culture. 
but they were like <laughs> terrible humans. Yeah, they, they weren't great. <laughs> They're <were> savages. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you want to give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Uh, pretty much what I do is I run a small real estate company, uh, small right now, hoping to grow it. But we buy multifamily properties throughout New Hampshire, mainly up in Manchester. Um, and in essence, what we do is find undervalued properties, buy them at a discount, fix them up, and then either rent them out or sell them. Uh, so it's basically flipping houses, but we do it with multifamily properties and then we either keep them and rent them out long term or we sell them and, and make quick income. Um, but been doing it for three, four years now. It's been going really well, built a nice portfolio up there and uh, just looking for more deals, looking to do the same thing and grow it a little bit larger. And at some point move down into into the maybe not Boston area, but North Shore, Middlesex County area. Why not Boston? So the big hurdle for for someone in my position or a company of our size is that finding capital that can buy, you know, for example, a, a three unit multifamily building in, you know, South Boston right now, Southie is like, can be 1.2, 1.5, 1.6 million dollars. Whereas that same building up in New Hampshire can be three, four, 500 grand. Um, so it, it, it really just comes down to having the investors. So have the money for it. Exactly. It's access to capital right now. And, Essentially, you can get into a bad spot if you kind of do a couple of very large deals rather than a lot of smaller ones. Because if one goes wrong, then you're in a you're in a very tough spot. So right now, you know, I can afford to take a little bit more risk up in Manchester because the numbers are smaller. Um, but down in you know the Boston area, whether it's Southie, Somerville, Cambridge, East Boston, wherever it may be, you know, in the city is just a non-starter because that's you know completely out of bounds uh, in terms of the capital you need. But all those markets outside of the city are just too high priced for, for right now, at least. Well, as a real estate dude, isn't it like, wouldn't now be the time? It's only going to rise the price, right? So why not just snipe on it now and so, like put all your eggs in a basket? Yeah, so that's an interesting comment because there's there's really two big schools of thought on that. Um, you know, we had the market crash in 2008, 2009. I mean, I wasn't in real estate. I wasn't even old enough to know what was going on and dude, we similar like, to you. What were you, like ninth grade? Not, yeah, I mean, I was, I think, 8th grade in 08. No, I was 7th grade, so. yeah. How, I mean, how old are you now? I'm 25 now. Okay, word. I'm about to turn 24. Yeah, like. We didn't know what was going on. Dude, I remember when the market crashed, like, the Kanye West song uh, and Estelle, American Boy, was popular. <laughs> yeah, Literally. exactly. And that was, and my mom <laughs> that was came, middle school. And my mom came home. I remember I was, like, listening to the song, my mom came home, and I. Like looked at her in her face, and she like looked like she didn't slept for like years. <laughs> yeah, she's in wealth management. Well, that's yeah. I mean, if you're in wealth management or no way, your your job's getting hit pretty hard. Yuck. Um, but I mean, so typically the the market runs in ten year cycles, and that's how it has you know from the beginning of you know at least the nineteenth nineteen hundreds at least. Um, so you know if you were to buy real estate in two thousand nine, it's worth a hell of a lot more right now. But at the same time, we're at the end of that 10-year stretch in 2019, 2020. Um, you know, theoretically, real estate values keep going up. But it is likely that there is some kind of price drop at some point over the next few years. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know when it will be. No one knows. But uh, in my position, where if I were to buy a couple buildings around Boston, and that's really all of my available cash to do that. Buildings or unit or like fam multifamily units. So let's say I buy a couple of buildings that have a few units in them. So okay. like let's say like two three unit buildings or something like that, two smaller cool. buildings. Um, the money required to do so around Boston right now because prices are so high would essentially bring me to a place to where I wouldn't be able to do anything for six seven eight months until I 
basically make some more money, raise some more money, or go find some more money to go do more business. And, you know, God forbid the market does drop. And I just bought really expensive real estate for me at the highest point, then it can be, that can be problematic. So, you know, I, I'd love to get into the Boston market, but yeah, I mean, I, the, if prices drop, it provides a great opportunity for me to do so. Or if I find some investors, which I'm working on doing right now, um, that want to invest in the Boston area, then it becomes a lot easier to do that. So again, when we run, when we run this today, can you just like work with me on just kind of understand, I'm just going to make sure I try to clarify and simplify everything just because mm-hmm. real estate's kind of new to me. But when you say working with investors, you mean like you're, you'll go reach out to a rich dude and say, Hey man, look, I'm this young stud. I, I can tell you what properties are good risks, what we'll make money on. Do you want to go in on it with me? I don't have the money to buy this right now. Sure. So there's been two main sources where I've, I've gotten, you know, money, so to speak, if you're going to keep it really high level. Um, one way to do it is to borrow money from, like you're saying, a rich guy that's got, you know, maybe he's a doctor, a lawyer, he's a former business person, he's got a lot of money in the bank, um, and he's sick of earning, you know, mediocre returns in like the stock market or something like that. So there's a whole industry that's private real estate lending, where it's just wealthy guys, they lend, um, you know, folks like yeah, me that do yeah. what I do to go buy real estate. And usually there's some kind of term on it. So you can borrow the money for a year, then you got to pay it back. Um, and usually within that year, what I do is, you know, borrow, let's say a couple hundred grand up front, add some value to the building. Now the building is worth, you know, more than what I paid, whatever that number is. And by adding value, what you're doing construction on it, cleaning it up. Yeah. Maybe getting better tenants in there, turning over the units, you know, cosmetic rehab. Yeah, exactly. Raising the rents, reducing the expenses. Um, you know, that's typically how it is with multifamily. You know, if it's a single family and you're flipping a house, it's just new kitchen, new bath, you know, new flooring, all that stuff that everyone sees on HGTV. But um, within that year, if I'm borrowing that money, I either have to sell the building to pay, you know, the original investor back. He's a be- he's essentially holding a mortgage. You know, it's just instead of a bank, it's a person. Um, or I go refinance with another bank. So I refinance into, you know, with Bank of America, Citizens Bank, some traditional bank. And then that mortgage pays off the original investor. So that's that's one way to do it. And that's mainly how I've done all my business. The other is finding investors that want to actually purchase buildings with you and have their name be on the title and own the building with you rather than being someone who's holding a mortgage against it. So um, that's... What would you prefer? I would prefer somebody to loan short-term debt, you know, make a short-term option mortgage. One. Option one. Because reason being is when you buy a piece of real estate... You're typically buying it if you intend to hold it for five, seven, ten years, ideally. Um, and if you're buying a piece of real estate with someone and they, you know, let's say in three years they need the money back and, you know, it's hard to get it back. You either got to go sell the building and you got to go, that person has to sell their interest in the building. It's just, you know, like any business partnership, if it goes sideways, it's a lot more difficult to get out of rather than someone who's loaning money because then it's easy to pay that person off and walk away. Absolutely. And and so at what point did you realize you want complete control of your own business and it was something you needed? Because some people work well with partnerships. I personally do not. Yeah. I mean, personally, like I would say that that realization, I guess, would, you know, if that's the right word, came. The epiphany. The epiphany, yeah. <laughs> probably came. I, I, I probably own like five, six, seven buildings in that range. And I, and I remember trying to figure out how I could buy more and to continue scaling the business and growing the business. But I didn't have a lot of access to, to capital. Um, 
and I was trying to find lenders that could do that, you know, that option one, the, the ideal way of raising money, which is doing it versus in debt. And at that point, I realized that even if I wanted to raise money in terms of loans, I still needed some money in the bank to feel safe. So I partnered on a, on a couple buildings with, um, with another investor up in the New Hampshire market. And what I found was is that we just had completely different, you know, we didn't talk it out enough going in. And there was some little stuff like he wanted to do, you know, for example, property management in, in this way. I wanted to do it in another way. We had different opinions on what kind of renovations we wanted to do the units. And it was just way more stress than it was worth. And we both realized that, hey, it's probably not going to work out for each other. So we ended up selling those buildings and did okay. But I realized from there that unless I can really find someone that wants to do exactly what I'd like to do, it's probably not going to be worth it. Um, I've yet to find that person. Especially at this size of your yeah. portfolio. But, I mean, once you get to a bigger point, you'll probably need to take on some help, right? Exactly. So, I mean, that's exactly right. So if I'm, you know, since I'm operating on a very small scale right now, and small being, you know, right now we own 40 units. Well, um, that's small for you, bro. It's, yeah. You're kind of bossing at our age, dog. You know that, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of, if you if you look at it relatively to, to people in real estate at 25 maybe, but in terms of other companies that are doing, you know, things similar to what I'm doing, it might be small. Um, but that is very in, accurate. In for where you want to get. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the same way. Yeah. I, how do you validate your own wins? That's a great question. Like, um, do you ever smell the roses? Like, yo, dude, I'm kind of doing well for myself at this age. Or, yo, I'm getting some good stuff done for myself. That's re- that's, that's a good point. I think that for me, um, there's obviously a financial way to validate it. But there's also just... Um, in terms of like what I expect out of myself, I think that's probably the number one way that I would look at it. Um, you know, right now financially, it's not like I'm you know living large. Right, I reinvest everything into the business, and I'm at the point where I'm just trying to grow it to the size to where I can you know hire a couple of people and actually get to um, you know become a business owner rather than an investor, right? And actually run a large company rather than being so in the weeds. Um, you love the grind, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I love the grind. I love looking for buildings. I love doing that and that's not something that I'll probably ever stop doing uh the only thing that'll change is that the deals will get bigger and so it'll be looking for different deals rather than you know smaller ones for example in New Hampshire and that you know comes back to that whole conversation about buying property in Boston obviously those are larger deals and that's what I you know that's my personal you know if I were to look at a, a path of growth right that's kind of the next step um but yeah I mean I, I do take time to to smell the roses and I think that it's important to do that because if you're constantly have your head down, right, it's hard to evaluate one where you are and two where you're even going. You know, sometimes you have to take a step back and ask, is the path I'm on where I want to be on? And that's one I did. Whereas, like, I, I was so focused on buying real estate in New Hampshire that I just didn't even think about any other possible strategies for myself at the time. And I think like six months ago, I I took a step back. I started doing a lot more networking in Boston to find people in doing doing real estate in Boston, similar to what I do. And that kind of changed my strategy. And I think it's important to just take a, you know, a step back or, or take a higher level view. Um, but I would say that, you know, in terms of validation, I would say that's really just, is, it's comparing to the benchmarks I set for myself, I guess. Do you write them down? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a, it's interesting. I have a few things that I have written down. Um and I actually just have it like on the background of my computer. <laughs> I feel like that's the best reminder for you anyone. Oh, my shit on the back of my phone, dude. Same yeah, thing. even better. You look at your, you know, your phone even more. Um, but, you know, just a few of the large goals that I have, you know, one being a real estate portfolio this size and two being, you know, maybe hiring a couple of employees like full time. 
Are you, are you comfortable sharing the goals? Yeah, I can share. Please. So one of them right now is is owning 150 units of real estate within the next five years. Um, go, dude. Yeah, I mean that's Sweet. a big one. Let's get it. You know, right now I'm at I'm at 40, right, and it's you know it's taken me three four years to get to 40, but as you grow, obviously you grow faster. So I think that's pretty achievable. Um, Two would be buy a hundred unit property in another state. That's a big one for me. It, one one hundred unit property. One like large apartment it's complex. Like a big like condo complex or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like you're driving around, um, you know, somewhere in the Midwest, and you see a large apartment community, right? Where it's got it's got a brand, it's got a name, you know. This is Axel. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Elite. Right. Axel's apartments. Um, but like, I think that's a big goal for me because that's kind of the real next step for me is buying much much larger deals like that with raising a lot of money so i think that's something that i want to do uh, over the next you know i have this time frame of five years is how i look at everything and then i try and break it down on like a yearly you know basis um that's a skill because one thing i've realized in the past year and mind you like i I usually evaluate my progress on a six-month period yeah but you don't ever get impatient you're close in age dude like i i need to make shit happen like asap i always got to keep it moving how do you just like yeah, and, and it's really tough. Here. Yeah, it's um, impossible, dude. So real estate, right, is like a get rich slow scheme, right? If you, you know, everyone, it, it's not at least in what I do, right? You can become like a real estate agent or a real estate broker, and you can make a lot of money year one just transacting deals. Um, you really hustle, you can make six figures year one starting from zero, right? That's possible. What I do is more, I'm I'm like building long term wealth, right? That's my goal is to buy a lot of property. And then within five years, it's worth double that. Ten years, it's worth triple that. Everything, you know, as a high level, that's the goal. But I do fall into what you just mentioned where there are times when I do a deal where I could sell it day one and make X amount of dollars, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand or something like that. But I end up holding on to it because I know that my long-term goal, right, is to build a large portfolio that's just producing a ton of passive income. So You know what that looks like in your head? Yeah. So, like, it's clear. You know exactly. It's clear because I have this vision, right? And I think a lot of people that do what I do who invest in rental real estate, right? They have this idea that at one point, you know, you're going to, you can quit your job. You can hire someone to manage all your buildings and you can just collect, you know, all this passive income every month. And, you know, let's say for me, 150 units of real estate, that equates to about 20 grand a month in passive income that I don't have to work for, that I basically just have to spend 10 hours a month managing some property manager or managing, you know, whatever it may be, the, the small little stuff in the business rather than being hands-on. That's my goal. And I, and I envision that as being really the end game for me rather than making a ton of money on a yearly basis where I'm actively working for it. Um, so that's how I, I keep that long-term vision in my head because I, I like imagine what that would be like, right? Where you bust your ass for 10 years and then all of a sudden you just have recurring revenue that you just never have to work for. And you and Jess just headed to sandals. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, no, Jess is in the, Jess is like, she She's wants awesome. to happen faster. Yeah, like, Jess is Jess is a lot more focused on building something large today. Well, that's what I was on the phone. With. She's like, yeah. I gotta, she's like, I got like two minutes. I got a meeting with a client. I'm trying to close out the client. Yeah, and she's she's a lot more. She's just a much more energetic person than I am, and I think that's you know it speaks to her having really immediate, shorter term goals of making more money in the short term or building something a little bit more quickly. I think that if you were to equate the two, right? She's like. A, you know, a, a software startup raising a ton of money and I'm a little bit more, I'm okay with taking a little bit longer to get to where I need to be because I know that that place is one where I'm not going to have to work and I'll be making a lot of money um, instead of just having, 
you know, a business that I'm busting my ass in every single day just to make a dime. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's how I keep that long-term view in play. Can we re- rewind? Can you elaborate on how this entire real estate thing started at college and kind of how things went down? Sure. So I used to, back in high school, early college, I used to flip cars. Like I'd buy cars on Craigslist and then go resell them. No way. Yeah. So like it was, what? Like I'd go, it was crazy. I had this system. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chester, New Hampshire, just some okay. small town. It's right by like south of Manchester, like Me thirty too. minutes south. Um, small town. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing there, but <laughs> nobody knows Chester except used cars. Exactly. Yeah, used cars and a lot of livestock. That's Chester, New Hampshire. Um, Sounds like a blast. Yeah, right. <laughs> Got out of there pretty quick. Um, That's why you're a real estate cycle now. You're probably <laughs> bored your whole life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. I used to uh, I used to do that. I mean, I made a little bit of money doing that. Um, I used to always want to kind of level up from that, so to speak, and flip we'll, houses. We'll elaborate. So you were what, like sixteen, seventeen? You found out Craigslist. You'd find like a nineteen ninety Prelude. You'd be like, okay, that's like two Gs. Then how would you evaluate how much you could sell it for? Yeah, dude, it's crazy. So it's actually a really simple system, and I think uh, it, it would still work now. This. Yeah, yeah. If you need to make some extra money, like really pay attention. I used to. Go on Craigslist, set the price parameters for like five grand to ten grand, and just look at all like the Fords, the like the Hyundai's, the Toyotas, all like the name brand cars, and then whittle it down to the sedans. I'd have one tab open with all the listings, another tab with like Kelly Blue Book, and I'd just be comparing prices from like what they're asking to what it's worth or what it would typically sell for, and I'd just offer a bunch of cars. Like every time I go do that, I'd make like. 10 15 calls finesse yeah and then you, you get one every couple of weeks make like a you know make a grand here and there um yeah you it was were a good like business 16 yeah i was like well so i was late high school i was probably like 18 and then i did it early college like 19 20 at, at the, so when this is going down at that age did you realize like damn i'm kind of good at this whole business thing i kind of understand it so it, i was like I, i've never really had like a job <laughs> so it was you know I, i've always tried to make money on the side doing stuff like that i mean i used to, i spent so much time on craigslist growing up just flipping stuff um cars was like the bigger item that actually made some good money but and you just love the game right i love i love the hustle of that you know yeah um it's so right. fun yeah dude like when i was when, when i was younger when i something clicked in my brain i was like yeah i kind of got this like hustle skill that a lot of people don't necessarily have my age is I, I ran a huge brackets, like these underground brackets really? for like March Madness. <laughs> That's awesome. And I would just hand grade the brackets. And so I would be getting all of this like, I, I'd be getting all this insight from this other huge guy who ran a bracket. And I, I figured out all this, what he charged per bracket, how much he was charging, what his price points were. And then I would just take all of clientele. Yeah, there you I go. I was like, yo, bro, you get a better deal on my bracket. So <laughs> his bracket starts getting fucked, and I was grading all of his clients' brackets, but but similar. Similar, yeah. I mean, once you realize that you can just make a lot more money doing something outside of walking into an job. office, yeah, it's like, you, it's hard to go back. What, what do your parents do? So they're both entrepreneurs. So my dad, he, he started a big wood chipping business, which is so random, but mm-hmm. came over from Sweden, and then he started building wood grinders, and... uh did did really well at that, and then my mom, you know, he met my mom at the same time. She helped him grow it. And so you knew growing up, you had no interest in running a wood chipping business. Yeah, so I, it was funny early on. Like my dad tried to get me involved in that, and I was like, I could not be 
less interested in the wood grinding it does not business. Sound riveting. Yeah, it's, it literally sounds like a complete grind, like pun intended. But the uh, yeah, it was brutal. But uh, <laughs> but it was. I realized that like that's just not something I wanted to do because he was interested in like bringing me in and trying to like pass along and and I was like, no, I'm gonna do my own thing. And I think it was like a pride thing too. Like I want to grow my own business. Rather Same than, way. Yeah. Like my um my mom is owns her own business. My dad's like the president of a union. Yeah, but I knew growing up, I was like, dude, I want nothing to do with this. Are you at the age now where you realize you have certain similarities with your dad that you didn't know beforehand? Yeah, so I think I have a lot of similarities where, I mean, just obviously entrepreneurial drive is a very broad like way to categorize it. But um, I think what he realized and what a lot of successful entrepreneurs and business people realize is that the sooner you can outsource some of the things you're doing or, or, you know, either by hiring people or by forming a team with partners or whatever it may be, you know, just the faster you get to where you want to be. And he was someone that like he always hired before he could afford the person he was hiring because he knew that it would just help, you know, help you grow a lot faster. And that's something that I've tried to do in my own business, right? Is I've been hiring people maybe before I can afford or just like right as I can afford and I'm, and I'm spending, you know, wasting no time, you know, pushing myself to the limit or leveraging myself too far because I think that once you get really good at managing people and like running a business where it's easy to plug and play people into certain roles and to do certain things, you just grow a lot faster. Um, that's like probably the biggest thing I learned from him um, outside of just the fact that, you know, he just networked his ass off. He came over here, he was like, you know, just a tall Swede and everyone was like, what's the deal with this guy and wants to just talk to him and figure out his business and he was just that was like his that's the biggest thing to do early on was was just all the time he spent growing the business was typically spent either doing sales or doing or just meeting key guys in his industry so i mean i think that's kind of like the model that i'm following or trying to follow at least outside of business though have you noticed any similarities between your pops at this age because i started realizing it like a couple months ago i was like damn i'm like now that i'm an adult yeah you can see yourself kind of becoming your (laughs) am i like Dave Jr. I don't know. How yeah, right. This, man. It's funny. My my dad's my dad's crazy. He's uh he's kind of off the wall. He's like an extraordinarily like intense, high energy guy. Um, Let's go. Sounds yeah. like my kind of guy. Yeah. He, like he's just he can't sit still for more than five seconds. My mom, on the other hand, is like very relaxed. I think I take part of that from my mom. Right. You got that yin and that yang. Yeah, I'm a little bit more low key than than my dad is, but yeah, there are a lot of things we're similar in. Um, but it is kind of alarming. Like you're saying, you're like, you look in the mirror and you're like, you can see it. Who is that guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, Sarah Slugs, Big Fresh, any questions? Oh, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Sarah Slugs, <laughs> let's hear it. Okay, so I know you had your, you bought your first house um, when you were 21. Um, so how did you convince someone, or did you have the capital yourself, or how did you convince someone, hey, invest in me, a young person trying to buy a house? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like really like one of the most important questions is because people that want to buy real estate without a lot of money in the bank, they're like, whoa, where do I start? Uh, so when I was 21, I was interning at this angel group in Manchester, New Hampshire, like some small venture capital group. And, uh, I was just doing stupid work, like really administrative stuff, but I worked there for probably a year. And there was a guy there that, um, he did private lending on real estate, similar to what I mentioned earlier, where, um, He'd loan X amount of dollars for, you know, an investor to buy a property so long as you paid him back within a year with uh, some larger interest rate than it, then that was a business that, uh, that he wanted to be in. So that's pretty much what I did. I actually found that first property I bought on Craigslist. <laughs> it was listed by the guy that owned it. 
and people sell real estate on Craigslist, believe it or not. I don't know why, but people do. And uh, just negotiate a really good deal, put it under contract. So we accepted, you know, he accepted my price. I actually had a right to buy it. And then I took it to this guy that worked at 10X Venture Partners is what it was called. The Angel Group. The Angel Group. And I said, you know, is this something that you'd be interested in lending on? And uh, Is that how you said it? Yeah, literally. I was like, because we or talked about like, it. you like, yo, bro, I need some money, dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could see right through me. He knew that's what I was asking. But uh, but I basically said, hey, I got a great deal for a three-unit property in Chester. Um, if, you know, would you be interested in lending me money and how would that work if it, you know, if it, if it could happen? And since we had a prior relationship, it was a little bit easier than just going to someone that you barely know and asking for money. And the the important thing with working with a private lender like that is – you know, they, they have a first position like mortgage on the property. So like, let's say I have no idea what I'm doing and I drive the whole thing into the ground and I just go broke and I can't pay. He can still take the property back. So he's got real collateral. Um, so it's not, you know, just a completely high risk proposition for like a private lender. Uh, but that's how he did it. And then he loaned the money and, and we went from there. So it worked out pretty well. Shouts out to that guy, man. Yeah. No, he's, he's a good dude. He's still, I think he's still landing up in New Hampshire right now. Um, I haven't worked with him for a very long time. But um, but he got you started. But that first deal is important. I mean, it's like a snowball. You do the first one, the rest just start coming pretty quick. How soon was the second deal after the first? And, you're, and so you're going to, like, what's that like? Like, you're going to class, and then you're yeah. like, dude, I got to go look at my property. Yeah, so I was How a terrible at school. It was ter- yeah, so I was oh. a junior, and uh, I was a junior at UNH, and that was pretty tough, like, going to, to oh. do work or meet contractors at the property, and, like, there's people who are 45, 50 years old living there, and... I'm 21 and they're like, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> like, do you own this place now? And what's you know, up, buddy? yeah, that conversation's weird. Um, but it really wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, everyone, like there was a, this was a property. It was actually in Chester, which is a nice town and the tenants were great. So it was like a really good first deal because there was no major problems with it. Um, but after that, the first that there, the next one came six months after I bought my first one in February of 2016. The next one was, I believe, I believe it was August of 2016, so maybe like six, seven months. Is, is that normal for most people with their first spot, or is it usually longer? I think it depends on your goals. Um, you know, some people just want to buy a property a year, and, you know, they do it for a few years, and that's like their retirement plan, and that's all they want to do. For me, where I wanted to build a business and actually buy a lot of real estate, it was that's probably about as fast as I could possibly go because I don't. no one would have lent me money, you know, on more deals or at a higher time or at a quicker time frame because they – it just would have been seen as too risky for a 21-year-old kid without a lot of money in the bank to just be taking on a lot of debt. So I would say that was probably as fast as I could possibly even do it. Like, even if I wanted to do it faster, I don't That's think I could have. That's quick, dude. Yeah. I mean, it was, as for a 21-year-old kid, it was pretty quick. Buying three units in February of, you know, in February, and then buying, it was another three-unit building, buying another three units, like, six months later. The fact that, you know, there was a lot of debt kind of on my balance sheet, but obviously it was backed by real estate. So it was on paper, it makes a lot of sense, but it's hard to convince the psychology of like a private investor to keep lending a young kid money before he, you know, can show that he knows how to handle multiple buildings. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at what age were you, at what point were you like, yo, bro, I kind of, I'm kind of nice at this. I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that was right around the end of college for me. Like in the senior year, I I'd bought a few more buildings. Um, I think I graduated with four and it was right around like 10 units. So it wasn't, it wasn't a lot, but and it all, was. And all your friends were going to go work at like KPMG or EY. Yeah. They were, you know, taking the, taking the business development role jobs. And, and I thought about going that route. I was like, you know. Oh God, never. Actually. <laughs> Come on, bro. I look back and it's, it's, yeah, I, I, 
that was I should have had that reaction. But um, in the moment, the the fear for me was like there's a a pressure at that time. Like, yo, get the corporate job, do this. Yeah, and the and the there's the pressure too, and then there's the security of having that income at least short term, and just having a salaried paycheck coming in where I wasn't making enough money doing what I was doing at the time in order to go full time. So I was like really in a limbo to where I was like, okay, should I get the job or should I try and go full time doing this? Um, what ended up happening was I started doing side work as a real estate agent to make just some immediate income. And then I, you know, I tried to quickly build a portfolio to a point to where I could do that full time and actually make that business happen. So that's the route that I did go. Um, and it worked out. So, but I was really close to taking that job, especially cause in real estate, it's hard to get bank loans. It's hard to get loans from the traditional lenders without like a consistent income without a, you know, you, you can't, you can't show them a pay stub from your from your rental real estate because it's a little bit more abstract. Well, there's no way around it. Like the way you start is like the only way you can start is like, you yeah. just have to do, take the steps that you took. Right. Yeah, exactly. How do you get started in real estate for the stupid consumer like myself? <laughs> Go. So if you want to start buying property and you don't have a lot of money or experience, you know, the first thing that you have to do is one, get a, get a little knowledge, right? I mean, you read a couple books, figure out how to actually run a property once you get it, and then just start networking with people that have the money. That was the first, you know, that was my largest focus initially was finding the people who had the money that knew what real estate private lending was, and then just convincing them to lend it to me. That's the first thing I did, and that enabled me to actually move on a property once I found what I wanted to buy, is having that lined up. So um, step one, find the money. Yeah. Step two, make the sales pitch. Yeah. Close the sales pitch. What's step three? So step three is finding good deals. Uh, you know, you can't just go on Zillow and buy the first deal you find, because usually those deals aren't great. So you have to figure out how to go off-market, typically, to find a good deal. For me, it was Craigslist. That's how I did my first couple. Um, I mean, there's a number of ways to do that. You know, you can call sellers, you can, you know, you can, you can go the classic sales run and do prospecting, reach out to owners of buildings that you might want to buy. Um, and if you are going to do it, if you are going to build, you know, buy a building that is listed with an agent that's, that everybody can see in the public, then you're going to need to make sure that you have a great agent or you yourself are a great agent and can negotiate a really good price. And you have to be patient in order to find a good deal because buying a bad deal is your first deal just you can't even get started. Yeah. You're just, you're basically setting yourself back a catastrophic amount of time. So make sure you buy a really good deal and have the funding lined up. It's kind of step one and two. I think you need to get sponsored by Craigslist, bro. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I've been, yeah, Craigslist has been getting dropped a lot. Um, but it's crazy. You can make a lot of money on Craigslist. I still look, I still have ads on Craigslist that I put up like every seven days that just say, I'll buy your multifamily property. And I get people that call me off of that stuff. And it's like, it's crazy. So you are currently managing 40 properties. Yep. How do you market your business? So something that, I, that I've been doing a lot recently, actually, and... A little LinkedIn post? Yeah. In there. Yeah, a little LinkedIn post. LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. LinkedIn's been big for me. Um, something a little bit more unique that I've been doing recently is um, I do a lot of direct mail to property owners. So in terms of growing the business as and I need to buy more properties and manage more buildings... Um, like print mail, like an envelope. Like, like they get a postcard in their actual mailbox saying, hi, my name's Axel Agnars, and I'd like to talk to you and about potentially your selling face. your property. Yeah, it's like my face and a bunch of dollar signs, right? And then it just gets them to call me. So it's that marketer. Yeah, so that's nothing new to like real estate. I mean, that's a pretty standard form of marketing for people in real estate. But that's one way of just going right to the seller and finding good deals. You know, other ways I'm doing right now is... I have a, uh, I actually have an intern up at UNH, great kid. Um, What's his name? 
His name's Isaiah. Shout out to Isaiah. Shout out to Isaiah. Yeah, he's doing a lot of off-market prospecting through email for me right now. So he basically finds the you know finds what entity owns the property, does some research, finds the email of the of the guy that owns the LLC that owns the property. Basically, does some research and finds an email address to contact a seller, and then he just sends out emails and he does you know a number of them each week, just traditional sales follow up. And not a lot of people take the time to do that, like in the business that I'm in. Um, so that produces a lot of results. I mean, we bought two or three buildings this in the last like three or four months just doing that in our larger buildings. Um, They're growing quick as hell, huh? Yeah, we are going pretty quick. And the hurdle right now is really just the capital piece like we were talking about earlier. Um, but, you know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, initially building the funding, got that figured out so I could start. Then I spent a lot of time building the deal pipeline so that I'd have good deals coming in to look at and consistently evaluate and since I spent so much time doing that, I stopped spending time building, you know, the funding side, the lender side, um, or the investor side. So now I got to like go back and catch, you know, bring that back up to speed with the deals that I'm finding, <clears throat> which is a little bit of a unique problem, I guess. Freshy, I know you got a handmaker. Um, Watch out, the suit's questions are just smacking. Yeah, so um, earlier you kind of mentioned um, like the housing crash back in '09 and like how there is another crash, like looming in the next couple of years so like as someone with a business period but also like a real estate business like is that ever in the back of your mind and like how do you kind of prep for those things when you are constantly buying new property and taking on more risks yeah it's, it's a really important question um <laughs> so there's a couple of big items that i make sure that i that i'm focusing on um in terms of a market crash right i mean the the big risk is having a lot of debt property values go down, your debt doesn't change, and you still got to pay your mortgage or the banks, you know, come and take your properties. Um, you know, the hedge against that is having a lot of liquidity in the bank. So just having, you know, adequate reserves, so to speak, to where even if property values do drop, um, you can still make your mortgage payments. And even if rents drop for your tenants a little bit, you still have enough money in the bank to at least ride out a few years until the market rebounds. Um, the good thing about buying multifamily rental property is that even though housing prices really, you know, kind of tanked in 08, the actual rents and the vacancies, so rent, just basically what tenants are paying and how many tenants there are didn't really change. So it's still easy to collect rents and pay you'll, your mortgage. You still have the same money coming in. Exactly. So even if your rental income changes, it's only changing by maybe 5 10%. It's not enough. It's not like, it's not dropping at the same rate as housing prices are. So, you know, that's nice. And the quick answer is having money in the bank to deal with, hitting the mortgage payments. The other, um, the other item for me is making sure that I don't have these private high interest, uh, notes that I'm using to buy real estate, having a lot of them at the same time. Um, because basically the strategy is like I was mentioning earlier, I'm buying property with this, with an expensive mortgage from a private investor. And then I need to go refinance that property with a bank in order to, to get them out of there and to have, you know, a traditional 30 year loan on the property. Um, the danger there is while I have this hard money on my property, you know, hard money, another term for private money. Um, if the market crashes and I have to go refinance, well, now my property is worth less and it's going to be harder for me to go get a traditional mortgage with a bank. And oftentimes it's going to involve me bringing a lot of money out of pocket or just having to pay a lot more to, to pay off the original investor. Um, so that's been something I'm actually really focusing on right now is if I'm taking on a lot of projects, I'm only taking on a small percentage of them with 
the really high interest mortgages that you know I used a ton when I got started when the real estate market was a little bit more stable in terms of you know the two three year outlook on it right now it's like really really questionable especially coming up on you know election season in 2020 and just the fact that prices have literally never been higher um can we just slow down real quick yeah i have literally no idea what that meant (laughs) (laughs) that was way over my head so he what big fresh ass was dude if the market crashes how are you preparing for that? And so you're saying there are specific projects that you are going to take on because if the market crashes, it won't affect you that much. Yeah. Can you give me like a one sentence on what those projects are? Yeah, I know. And, you start and that's my action. I'm like, whoa, dude. No, I know. I know. Yeah, I'm talking like high level economics and crap well, like that, which well, isn't well, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're ready to go all business. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, the the quick answer to hedge against a market tanking, right? One, have money in the bank so you can pay the banks. Um, two is like I said, the loans that I get up front, they're usually like 10 to 12% interest, which is like really high interest. So for the, the listener, mm-hmm. what Axel's saying is when he gets a loan from a rich dude, yep. the rich dude says, all right, bro, I'll give you 10 bucks, but you have to give me back 11 yeah. in X amount of time. Exactly. So that's the issue with that being... There's a shorter term, right? You have a year to pay the guy off. Um, And the interest that's accumulating throughout that year is pretty considerable because, you know, for example, a bank might charge you 4% interest on a loan. A private guy, because it's a little riskier and, you know, it's a guy, not a bank, right? He's going to charge you 10 to 12%. So you're paying a lot more in interest. Um, And the issue there is that, you know, for example, and maybe I use numbers, right? I buy a property for $200,000. And I have a loan for $180,000 and I come up with the other 20. That 180 is really expensive, right? My interest payments every month are pretty high on that comparatively you, you to for to a pay bank. Monthly. Yeah, so I pay monthly. Now, you know, I buy a $200,000 property that's worth $250,000. You know, I found a good deal. And then I go to the bank and say, hey, my place is worth two hundred fifty grand. Can you give me a loan on it? And they say, sure, we can give you a loan of one hundred eighty grand. And now I pay off the original investor and now I just own the place. Um, so the issue there is, let's say I buy the place for 200, I owe the guy 180, and then the market crashes, and now the property is worth 150 or something like that. And now, if I want to pay this investor off, I have to come up with thirty thousand dollars out of my own pocket to go pay him off. Yeah, and yeah, if you yeah. have if you have a few properties like that at the same time, and it's a lot of money. Yeah, that means you got to come up with a lot of money. So something that I've been doing is, if I'm going to be doing deals like that with a private investor with really expensive uh, debt, like a really high interest mortgage, I'll I'll, ma- I'll only make sure I'm doing a couple at a time. And if I'm going to do more deals at the same time, I'm going to make sure I just buy them up front with, you know, bank financing. That's really you know four percent, really long term, and that's easy to 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 take care of if the market were to tank. Got it. Big <clears throat> fresh makes sense. What is your day to day like? Like, what do you when you wake up? What do you do? You know, you're fully self-employed. I think I'm sure a lot of your friends want to be the same way. A lot of my friends are jealous of like my day-to-day as well. But you wake up, what time, what what goes on throughout the day, and when do you pack it up? Yeah, so, I mean, that's the toughest part about being self-employed is like keeping yourself motivated and really understanding what you need to be doing And accountability. All day. Exactly, accountability being the biggest. So, 
I mean, I know I get up at 7 a.m., you know, I'm, I'm not up like 5 a.m. like a lot of these like <laughs> really crazy entrepreneurs are, right? I mean, I get up at 7 and, and my goal on a day-to-day basis is to do a couple things that move the needle, so to speak. Yo, where'd you, who taught you that? I, it, I must have read it somewhere. I don't know, but. There's a, I learned that from a, I'm the same way. I have five yeah. things every day I write down that I have to get done. Yeah. I learned from a podcast called the MFCEO Project. Oh, is that, is that a, I was going to say that's Andy Frisella. I see his Instagram all the time. Yeah, that guy's has, a boss. He has something called uh, the power list. And he's like, write down five things that you know. If you get them done, you'll be moving forward. Yeah. I so mean, let's go, bro. That's great. Yeah. That's Shout sweet. out to Daily Progress. <laughs> um, yeah, I should up mine to five. I'm saying just a couple, but. What do you do, three? Yeah, so I usually have like three big things. And usually they're all surrounding um, the growth of the business rather than like the maintenance of the business, so to speak. So what's today's? So, for example, today, um, you know, I have a, a few large buckets, right? I have, like, networking with people that, you know, that are have in money. the industry, right? Either have money or that currently own real estate or, like, like you, right? Someone that's talking to a lot of entrepreneurs in the area that I'm working in. Cool. So, you know, right, this checks off that box. Um, oh, so, like, you wrote down network with people. Yeah, so, and, and that can be, like, a phone call with someone that connects with me on, like, LinkedIn, or it could be... Me just get on the biggest podcast in Boston. Man. Yeah, exactly. Or it's, you know, it's any number of things. But for example, one is just maintaining connections with the people in my industry. Um, because real estate specifically is an industry where you're, you know, for lack of a better word, status really does get you deals and get you money. So that's like number one. reputation. Yeah, exactly. Number two, do some kind of sales um, related task to bring more leads in. For example, today. I'm finalizing and, you know, the next step on a direct mail campaign. So I'm going to be sending out like 600 letters in, in a couple of weeks. Um, who's that with like an, uh, outsourced marketer or are you doing with someone specifically? It's actually a Boston based company. It's called open letter marketing. Um, it's a bot. Is it effective marketing? It is. Yeah. It actually, it actually does. I mean, it's effective in that, you know, you send out a thousand pieces of mail, you get 10 calls and for every 10 calls, maybe you get, you know, one deal. Um, but it, you know, that one deal pays, you know, 10 X is the cost of, of the, you know, what it costs you to do that marketing run. So it's a, um, there's a positive ROI on the marketing. Yeah. And, and for me, it's a pretty core way to grow the business. And why not social though instead? So what I found is that like, when for we example, say social, we mean like, why is Axel sending letters to people instead of just being active on social media? So it's interesting, right? If you were to look at, for lack of a better word, like my customer, right? Um, if I'm a business and I'm just looking at who my customer is, my customer, aka like the person that I want to reach and talk to, is typically an older person that owns property in New Hampshire, right? It's hard to reach those people on social media. Like, really, the only Facebook? way to do Facebook, maybe. Um, it would be you'd have to figure out a way to target Facebook ads to people that specifically own multifamily properties, which is such a small like subset. Can you can figure out the psychographics of these people, like all the people who like, who have multifamily properties also like trucking or, or land. It's probably possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that there's definitely, you know, like Home Depot would be like an off the cuff one, right? Like these yeah. people are going to Home Depot to buy supplies all the time. Like exactly. that could be one. Um, I they mean, also, like what do people in New Hampshire like? Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> such a mixed just, basket up yeah, there, just dog. Beer and shoveling, like, you know. <laughs> just like tractors and like. Yeah, granite. Like, I don't know. It's like incest. <laughs> it's a joke. Yeah, it's I'm a like. It's a joke, guys. Um, 
But yeah, I mean that is it is tough though. I mean it's hard to find those people because it's such a small subset. I'm sure there is a way, like you're saying. I just haven't explored it. One of my biggest weaknesses is like Facebook ads or Google ads or stuff like that. That's just really never something I've done, and I know that there's value in being good at that. So I probably should put more time into it. But um, no one's judging you, bro. It's okay. Yeah, right. I mean, like when I'm like the direct mail, it's old school, but it works. You know, it it produces results, Um, and then. You know, for example, that's something I'm doing today. The other thing I'm doing today is following up with, like, I believe 20 sellers over email, which I sent out, like, last week. Basically oh. just doing activity. Yeah, it's brutal. But just doing doing either follow-up or, like, prospecting tasks that brings leads in. Um, the thing that I try and limit from happening is spending so much time maintaining the, the existing business, whether that's, like, yeah. talking to property managers, talking to the insurance guy, talking to you know, the city inspectors, just talking to people that don't add, like they're not growing the business. And, How do you assess yeah. like what you, what's going to grow the business? That's, that was something like five, six months ago with everything I do, like figuring out exactly what's going to move you forward. Is that tough for you sometimes? It's tough because one, it's just really hard to pull yourself out of what you have to do day to day. I mean, it's just, like the, that's probably the hardest thing any like business owner's doing. Um, you know, something that I did was like over a week stretch, I just wrote down like everything I did, like literally throughout the day, I'd write down like emailed with like insurance broker or like spoke with investor, like all just so many different things. And I just started writing next to some things like this is not producing revenue for me. This is not growing the business. And then I would circle the things that were and then I made those like that big three that we were talking about you know maybe you made those your big five like this is what I need to be doing I need to make sure I'm doing at least some of these every day um and then the next step for that was I just tried to hire people to do the stuff that wasn't adding value you know get it yeah and what time do you normally go to bed um not to be too intrusive yeah i mean weekdays i'm 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 pretty lame i'm like in bed by like 10 30 11 like i'm not up too late during the week i mean weekends so everyone's up late sleep, but right? yeah i'm a big i'm a big like yeah, i mean at least seven eight um i've been trying to get better i realize i don't know where it was glorified if you're running your own thing like no you should sleep less i think it's way more about being effective yeah and like getting done what you have to get done would you agree yeah i mean i would definitely agree i think that like the whole sleep five hours and work the other you know the rest of the time you're awake like that just doesn't make any sense i mean for me it's like like i'm you know a lot of the conversations i have i really need to be on whether i'm talking to like lenders or investors or sellers and i'm you know constantly selling a lot of different people and it's like I don't think that there's value in just frying my brain at midnight every month, just plowing through work. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, maybe someone who's in a little bit of a higher risk business that where they're not doing that might fail, like someone at a tech startup or something like that, where they really got to grind. But for me, you know, I can have a slower like growth trajectory and like my business won't like fail. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm the same way. I realize it's like way more about what I get from conversation on a day to day basis than it yeah. is like doing a ton. But at the same time, I still do it, like, a ton. Yeah. I mean, just obviously, like, on the weekends, you're not sleeping a lot. I mean, like, no. yeah, because we're both younger. Like, it's hard to not do that. <laughs> but Well, you love working, right? Yeah. I mean, I really like what I do. And I'm assuming you're the same way where it's, like, I don't I don't really look at it as, like, work. Like, I wake up and I'm, like, shit, I got to do this today. Like, I, I'm not – I never really have like, that. just, like, pumped. Like, let's fucking go. <laughs> I mean, I do, like, there are some days where, like, yeah, that day I was going to close that deal, there's some days where I'm going and, like, touring, like, three or four properties that all could be great deals, and I'm, like, pumped to, like, just get up there and maybe close something, but, I mean, there are days that are 
like less glamorous. Yeah. Like, you know, for example, it's something that I've like had to do numerous times. Like I got to take like contractors to like small claims court for like stealing money, like doing, there's all the, there's the dark side of real estate, evicting tenants, all that. That's, I mean, that shit like really keeps you up at night, but. And no one glorifies yeah. that. No, exactly. Like what, what's like the most whack thing you've had to deal with in the past month? There's been some, cra- there's been some crazy ones. Um, I mean, I could go, the, the tenants and the contractors are the two big, like, <laughs> buckets. I just, um... Like, you've had any nightmare tenants that just, like... Yeah, do you, I, I don't know how, I can go, like, deep on, not, like, deep time-wise, but just, like... Go ahead. It's not, like, graphic, but, like, I had a tenant that, up in Manchester, like, really downtown, it was, like, a questionable area. I just shouldn't have bought the building there, but, um, I had to evict a tenant up there that, for some reason, he just kept getting high, and he'd go out on the back steps, which is, like, bordering the road, and he would just, like, take a crap, like, every day. And, like, think about how crazy that is. And he would take a shit on his back porch. Yeah, and there's other tenants in the building. And when you say high, like, what, on heroin or, like, I don't know. some yeah, sort of dope? I would assume. Um, so, like, that was, like, I've never had to evict someone for anything that wasn't, like, just not paying rent, which is really straightforward. But it got to the <laughs> point where... Sarah's cringing. How crazy is that? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, Jeez. Yeah. So I had find out? just tenants calling me and I was like, like the first time I was like dookie bro. Yeah. And I was just like, I remember talking to a landlord tenant attorney. I was like, how do I even go about this? And they're like, you just take it to the court, see what they do. And he ended up just leaving the property like on his own. I didn't have to go through the whole process. So it was fine. But I don't know. You see some crazy stuff, especially in a market like Manchester, which is like a little dicier than like, you know, East Boston or, or Southie yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a terrible area to live, but it's, you know, it's like a lower to middle income area, so to speak. Um, and there's the good parts and the bad parts, obviously. You know, a lot of what I buy is right on the fringe of the bad parts and the good parts because that's usually where the best deals are. Um, but, yeah. Here's a socioeconomic question. Big fresh because this is usually your lane. Let me know how I do. Do you feel obligated to because you're going into these houses and making them nicer and look nicer. Yeah. Do you ever think about the pressures of gentrification in a lot of these areas like is that something on your mind like well, i don't want to totally gentrify the area because i could totally evict people out of here so that is that's definitely like a consideration and i think that's a huge consideration you know even more so in boston because where these they're really like the people that for example lived in east boston which is now becoming like a nicer area like where are they going right i mean they're getting pushed really far out in manchester i think that it's slightly less of a concern because you know the level of gentr- you know, gentrification, right, is not where in East Boston some guy buys an old building and makes beautiful luxury condos, right? Like in Manchester, it's not – you can't make money doing that because there isn't the people to buy them and there isn't the tenants to live in really nice units. So, you know, you can buy a really rundown building from some asshole slumlord, which I've done, and you put, you know, new kitchen, new flooring, all the nice stuff in, but it's not like luxury, um, and maybe you raise the rent from 1000 bucks to 1200 bucks a month, right? But it's on your mind. Yeah, it's certainly a consideration. The thing with Manchester that there's still so many places for people that maybe they can afford 950 bucks for a two-bedroom versus 1200 There's still plenty of places for the people that can only afford that 950 to go, even, you know, five streets down the road, right? It's not like they're getting pushed out of the city. So, But if you were to come to Boston, right? Like, yeah. Because I'm sure that's going to happen. It's on your mind like, oh, shoot. I have to develop really nice places here because that's what the market calls for. How would you manage something like that? Like, I don't want to evict the person who's been living here for 40 years. Yeah, I mean, that's really just like the conundrum of like people that do what I do. It's like a huge question and it's hard to answer. And it's really just like, 
you know, an ethics question, I guess. Like some people have no problem. They buy the, you know, the three in a building that they're going to turn into nice condos or something. And, you know, they just give everyone notice to vacate and that's just how they operate. I would say that, you know, in mass, it's just specifically mass. It's a lot harder to do that because the landlord tenant laws are like really favor the tenant in mass. So like tenants can stay longer. They have a little bit more power. They have more time to find like a new place. Like, you know, you can't, in, in, in mass and eviction for a tenant takes like six months usually or in New Hampshire it takes six weeks so it's oh, wow. it's really like apples and oranges so in Manchester specifically that or in New Hampshire specifically that's a really big point like you buy a place and you give someone 30 days to, to vacate right that's not a lot of time to have your life uprooted so I think that's like a really that's much more of an ethical question I guess in New Hampshire rather than mass where usually they got like a couple you know a few months but um, it, it's just happening at such a rapid rate here because everyone yeah. who was living in traditionally tougher neighborhoods in Boston, like Roxbury or Mattapin, even yeah. that rent is so high. I think median rent in Boston is now what, like seventeen fifty, eighteen hundred. Yeah, it's high. It's, it's really high. high. Yeah, it's really high. And so they all they all have to move to Brockton. Yeah. Now all these people in Brockton are pissed because now the housing prices rising in Brockton. Now they all have to move to Randolph, and after Randolph, like yeah, you're just so far you're from the Cape city. Cod, bro. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like one of those things where it's really just hard to avoid it because the people that are doing those projects, I mean, they're making they're making money, right? It's hard it's to like tell cap- people capitalist to, man. Yeah, it's hard to tell people to not make money. I would say that the the way you counter that is what Boston does in a lot of ways, where they have all the affordable housing like regulations. Like if you're building a new building, like a certain percentage have to be at like the median rent so they're affordable. But I mean, that doesn't change the fact that you buy a place with tenants in it and they got to move. And yeah, I had the I mean, mayor. It's tough. Here. It's a tough question. I had the mayor of Somerville, and mm-hmm. I also with the mayor of Cambridge too. And they had they had slightly different points. But he was like, "Dude, honestly, this gentrification thing and like affordable housing is like impossible to deal with." It's like kind of what yeah. I got from it. It's like what one thing I can do is I can try to alleviate other expenses and someone's expenditure, like transit or like. Yeah. I don't know, like grocery prices or something. So you have more money to pay it, but there's like nothing you can really do. I mean, that's a good point. Cause I know that a lot of, at least up in New Hampshire, I'm sure there's programs down in, in mass where like there's, for example, like most tenants pay heat. Like you have a separate, you know, gas meter for your unit up, you know, or I mean just most places around here, whether it's mass New Hampshire. And that's like, obviously one of your biggest costs outside of rent every year is like paying your heating bill. Like there's so many programs in New Hampshire that, subsidize like tenants heating bills um or subsidize just their utility usage so that's like probably what he's talking about and i mean that's really the answer is you know the rent is really hard to change outside of like rent control which is like really invasive um and it's like the jury's out on whether or not that works i guess but but yeah i would say they kind of are hitting the nail on the head like boston's a really desirable place to live all the mayors of you know the mayor of somerville the mayor of cambridge all the politicians in the area, they want people to come live in Boston and they want they to, want to drive commerce to their city too. Yeah. And it's sense. like, you're stepping on your own foot, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Hey, one shout out to Harry Varenis. I owe him a shout. He sent me a bunch of questions. Can you answer these ones? Answer whatever question I'm about to ask someone quick. Yeah. Quick. I can do quick because we'll cut up for some content. Do you have it there, Sarah? Uh-huh. Harry's a, Harry's a kid I went to college with and he, he has a, a different position than you. He said he's a glorified real estate broker or real estate agent, whatever that means. Okay. But I know he buys properties too. Yeah, maybe does both. <clears throat> but he's a, he's a, he reminds me a lot of you, honestly. Yeah. 
But Harry, you might be a little more gritty, and Axel might be a little more polite. <laughs> that's what I'll say. Shout out to Harry. That's my dog. Um, so he wants to know, have you ever used seller financing to buy a deal, and what's your biggest piece of advice for someone who's buying a property with seller financing? Did we already answer that? Um, not really. I don't think specifically to seller financing. Okay, Harry. Um, let's yeah, go, baby. Good question. Um, it's the, one of the easiest ways to buy real estate without your own money. Um, I did buy, I bought a six unit property in Manchester with seller financing and it was like one of the best deals I've done. I would say that like the things to look out for if you're buying a property with seller financing is make sure that the term on the loan is long enough to where you have time to go find another lender. Like if you were to buy with seller financing and you only had a year you know, it was like a year term and you had to either sell the place or go find another lender within that year, you know, and it, you might get start, you might start getting stressed out towards the back end of that, especially if you can't find another lender. So I would say make sure the term is long, uh, make sure the interest isn't too high. And, you know, I would say outside of that, it's a really great strategy. Nice. Okay. So any more questions? Big, big fresh. You learn some stuff about real estate. Cause big fresh, but think about maybe getting a little spot himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great business. So let me just ask this real quick. If I want to go buy, I want to go get a spot, right? How much money do I need? Give me one number in Boston. If you want to live in it, um, you need three and a half percent down. That's kind of the minimum amount. If Give you want like to a, live in the property, like in my bank account, I'm looking at the number. What do I need? Let's use Somerville as an example. You're going to spend, if you're going to buy a condo, you know, 600 grand, you probably need, you know, 30, 40 grand in the bank. Okay. Um, any larger than that, that number goes up, but you need three and a half percent of whatever property you're buying if you're going to live in it. It's called FHA. Got it's it. like a loan program, but not too much. And if I want to go buy a property and like be be a guy like you, like own and operate and manage the company, how much? Assuming you can find a lender that can lend you most of a purchase price of a property. I mean, start with 20, 30 grand. You know, cover your ass. So Harry was saying too, like yeah. 20, 30 G's. If you yeah. had like 50 G's, you can make something happen, kind of. Yeah. I mean, you can with less, but you just got to find people with money to partner with you. Got it. <clears throat> okay. So before we segue the closing segment of the show, one, thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely, Did man. This fun? was sweet. Yeah, this was awesome. Let's go, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we get a popping. Yeah. But I want everyone to know, man, I, in conjunction with the rest of the Golden Deer team are throwing an event on January 17th called GDP Hustle, where guys like Axel, I'm going to make my crazy sales pitch to Axel after we get off this, but we've had a bunch of Boston-based brands, startups, and companies on the show. And sometime this summer, I realized, yo, it is impossible to meet people if you're grinding 24-7, and it's kind of like the most important thing if you want to build something. You need to meet more people. You need to network with more people. So we're having everyone come to our studio, the Warehouse 11. They're coming and setting up tables, marketing themselves. There's going to be free booze, so get loose. Who doesn't love that? No, that's going to get everyone there. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Easy. Come. You're going to get a table just like this. Bring whatever you want. Sell whatever you want. We're going to have a live pitch competition, right? How about that? That's Curveball. awesome. Yeah. I'm going to be like this in podcast format, except we're going to move it out there. And then people are going to come up there in a minute and say, like, this is my business. This is why you should get involved. This is why you should get invested. You like that? Yeah. And then we're going to produce that and stream it on one of the biggest YouTube channels in Boston. So you're going to have thousands of more eyes on you and your business. Good deal. We also might have a guest speaker. Whoa. Who's an entrepreneur successful? 
But that's a might because I'm still talking to him right now. I don't know. He might charge me a bag, so I'll <laughs> figure that out. The booze night might, yeah, might not be free if he comes. <laughs> well, well, if he doesn't come, it's okay. But let's hope we can make that happen. Lastly, it's going to be a great time. Great people are going to come. And it's a new type of event for Boston. Wouldn't you agree, Big Fresh? Yeah. And it's new for the, the GDP boys and girl. Hi, this is Axel, and that was my golden hour. <laughs>